So we're going to look at uh, Luke 16, continue in our study in the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke 16, uh, we've got uh, the story of the unjust steward. We've got an issue with the covetous Pharisees. And then, of course, this also is the place where uh, we read about the uh, rich man and Lazarus. Okay, so that's Luke 16 in a, in a thumb, in a, what does it call, a thumbnail sketch or whatever. And uh, as we look at this uh, Luke 16, well, let me pray first <laughs> so I can get my thoughts uh, collected and, and settled down and ask God's blessing. Because definitely, if it weren't for the Lord blessing his word, then anything I have to say would be of absolutely no value. So, Holy Father in heaven, we come to you, Lord, and we're, first of all, we're just so, so very grateful that in our hands you have preserved for us uh, your holy word and we can read about our savior Jesus and we can read what he said to these folks so long ago and, and these words that he spoke to these folks were are, is just as applicable for us today Lord and and just as powerful father and and Lord we just so much appreciate that uh, you um, uh, did preserve your word for us and that we can go to your word and just and uh, just read Read, read what it is that uh, you would want us to know. We're also thankful, Lord, that we're in a church that believes in this book and that Father uh, aspires to preach this book faithfully. And Father, I thank you for these people who come to hear the teaching of your word. Uh, I love them, Father. I pray that you would put your blessing upon their households, Lord, uh, that they would uh, prosper in the things that uh, they are taught. They would prosper in those things uh, that you have preserved for us. And we thank you and we pray you in Christ's name. Amen. So what we have here in Luke uh, chapter 16 is actually a a continuation of the discourse that uh, Jesus started all the way back in uh, Luke chapter 15 uh, when he was addressing the Pharisees in regards to the uh, publicans and the sinners that were gathering around Jesus and they wanted to hear what Jesus had to say and of course the Pharisees criticized uh, Jesus and and thought uh, you know that was beneath him or, or for whatever reason uh, they just didn't like the, the fact that Jesus was associating with the with these uh, publicans and sinners and so he's getting ready and he's continuing on this discourse and of course the pharisees are still there they're still right there as like we read here in 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 luke uh, chapter uh, 16 it says here and he said also unto his disciples so that means even though that's a, a continuation of the discussion right? He's now addressing his disciples more so than the Pharisees, okay? But the Pharisees are there, and they're listening to what everything uh, that Jesus said, and we know that they're still there, because later on in Luke 16, 14, uh, we read, and the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things. So whatever Jesus was saying to his disciples... The Pharisees were right there, and they were listening to what uh, Jesus had to say. And um, so so, um, Luke 15 and Luke 16 are all one discussion, one conversation. And that's important. That's important to uh, keep that in mind. Because it all fits. It all fits together. So that's important to keep in mind. So let's take a look at... um, 
uh, this first part, uh, part about the unjust steward, which goes from verse 1 to verse 12. And it says here in Luke 16, 1, And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him, that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Now, that's the story. And, um, you know, there are some passages uh, that carry, um, uh, it's not a very good term, uh, some excess baggage or perhaps uh, some uh, other teachings that are connected to it, uh, that sometimes uh, this other teaching uh, has a way of obscuring the intent of what uh, Jesus is addressing here. Um, and I know that's of some of your guys' background, and I know that what I'm getting ready to say, uh, you're going to say, yeah, I've, I've heard that application. I've heard this passage taught uh, in such a way that it uh, defines what a dispensation is. Or rather, the stewardship of a, of a dispensation. And I've heard this taught that there are, in this passage, you can see at least uh, four characteristics of a dispensation, or rather the stewardship of a dispensation. One, every dispensation will have a chief steward, just like we have in the story. So every dispensation will have a chief story. Uh, stewards, like example, under the dispensation of the patriarchs, Abraham would be that chief steward. Uh, Also, number two, every steward is giving a specific responsibility, something to be accomplished within that dispensation. Okay, the same thing with this dispensation of the church. What is it that we are to accomplish in this dispensation? We are to go, therefore, and teach and make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's what the responsibility of this dispensation is. In every dispensation, there will occur a failure in that dispensation. So every dispensation, there occurs a failure on the part of the responsibility or the task. And then also in every dispensation, uh, God will judge this failure and remove the stewardship as he introduces another dispensation. Um, In 1 Peter 4.17, it says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. So, uh, you know, many look at the rapture of the church 
as an escape from the wrath of God, the escape from judgment that God's going to pour out upon this earth in tribulation period. But what actually the rapture is, it's a, it's a judgment on the church in their failure as far as their responsibility in the dispensation. Because what immediately happens after the rapture is the judgment seat of Christ. And all the Christians from you know, the apostles and, and, and Paul up to our, our current time uh, will all stand before who? We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ to give an account of what we did with our stewardship, that responsibility that God has given to us in this dispensation. Second Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So you see, that's one way that I've heard this passage presented and passage preached. So that's what I mean that sometimes passages in the scripture have been presented in such a way that sometimes people can't seem to uh, disassociate themselves from that application. You understand what I'm trying to say as far as the, uh, the intention that, that uh, it, how it fits within the context of the chapter. Now, I completely concur that this is a good outline if you want to teach about that kind of a, a, a dispensational application. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a good application. I've also heard it preached and read it uh, done where people try to allegorize this passage and they try to make Jesus Christ out to be the master and the unjust steward this particular individual and the the debtors these kind of individuals and by the time you get through all of that conglomeration of characters it gets very confusing and, and, and you miss the moral of the story because they're trying to force fit things into the passage that just simply uh, don't belong. Okay, So I say all of that to say this. The story is really a very simple one. It's a very, very simple story. Uh, the steward and the prodigal are both guilty of the same indiscretion. Right? Uh, they both are, they both have mismanaged resources available to them. They both mismanaged the resources. Uh, the prodigal son wasted away his inheritance. Right? This unjust steward, he what? He mismanaged the, his master's estate or property. Uh, the word wasted is used both of the prodigal and this unjust steward. And the word wasted is kind of an interesting word. It's an agricultural term. It uh, describes the old-fashioned winnowing process, right? Where you take uh, your grain and the the chaff, the hole, and you throw it up in the air, and the wind comes and blows the chaff away, but yet the heavy grain falls to the ground, and you keep doing that until uh, most of the chaff is blown away and separated from the grain. Well, that's what these guys kind of did. They were just irresponsible. So they took this wealth and they just kind of threw it up in the air and let the wind carry it away. That's, that's the word that uh, Jesus used. Uh, they both selfishly and unwisely mismanaged the wealth entrusted to them. Uh, they selfishly squandered it away and just like the chaff in the wind, it just, 
it proved useless. It just, it just went away. So, uh, with the prodigal, it says that he came to his right mind and in return to his father, repentant, uh, sorry for what he had done, sorry for the mess that he had made out of his life. But notice here with the unjust steward, <laughs> he was ratted out, wasn't he? Somebody informed on him. Somebody informed on him to his master, and he was called onto the carpet to uh, hold uh, to make an account of uh, of his uh, of these charges of mismanagement now i think it's interesting to me that the master in the parable as of yet really had no proof of any kind of illegal activity on the part of the steward all he was going by was the hearsay of others he was he was charged by others that uh, he was mismanaging his master's estate so he was going on the accusations of others but he did take the man out of his position he did take the man out of his position Uh, the master also demanded to see the books all right, show me the books. Let me, let me see the books and let's go over these books. And let me see what kind of damage you've done to me. And then let me, okay, this is my thinking, okay? And then let's consider if legal action should be required. All right, so he wanted to, he wanted to see the books. Now, this unjust steward, he was, he was used to his easy living, wasn't he? Uh, he says, I can't dig ditches. I, I'm too proud to beg. He says, uh, I, I, you know, what am I going to do? So the stark reality of his losing his position, losing his easy life, it became a reality to him. And so he says here, I'm resolved what to do. And being a wily man, he puts together a plan so that when he is, when he does actually lose his position, right, then he'll be accepted into the homes of his uh, master's debtors. The guy's thinking ahead. The guy is thinking ahead here. Uh, So through dishonest cunning, he is an unjust steward. (laughs) Through dishonest cunning, uh, being a man in charge of his master's affairs, just like with Joseph in the house of Potiphar. You remember what it said about Potiphar? He... He didn't know what was going on because he fully trusted in Joseph. He just knew that he had dinner in front of him when it was dinner time. Because he trusted in Joseph so much. Well, that's the same way with this unjust steward. He was, he was in charge of the affairs of, this, of his master's house. So what he does is he privately calls together all the debtors. Right? And he does something there. You know what he does? Huh? Pretty much. What he does is he rewrites their contracts of debt. That's what he does. And so he starts reducing the debt of these men, and then he has them <laughs> sign these contracts of debt at a reduced rate. At a reduced rate. Again, the master is informed what this man did, but again, he has no proof. So I'm thinking the original contracts uh, kind of disappeared. And all he had to go on was the altered contracts. All right? All he had to go on was the altered contracts. So all the master could do, the man had lost his job. 
So all the master could do was acknowledge the cleverness of this unjust steward. He had to admire the wiliness of this man as he was thinking toward his future. He had to admit that, hey, that's, that's pretty sharp. That's pretty sharp. Okay, now here's where the allegorizers get into themselves into trouble because if they connect Jesus to the master, how, what kind of light does that put Jesus in? Right? It puts Jesus in the kind of light that one, he's, a, he's, he's an irresponsible master himself. He doesn't watch after the state of his own flocks. Two, it also shows that he condones this dishonest behavior, doesn't it? Now, does Jesus condone dishonest behavior? No, he does not. He himself calls this man in his story an unjust steward. And the word unjust means unrighteous in heart and in life. So this guy was a rascal. There's no denying it, he was a rascal. So what is the reason for this story? Uh, well, the reason or the moral of the story is, is seen in the following verses. This is, the, this is the point that Jesus is making in bringing the story up. Now again, remember, who is he talking to? Right? Now, think on that for a minute. His disciples... Who's in this group of disciples? And who else is there listening? The Pharisees. All right? Luke 16.8. Uh, and the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Now, Jesus is making a comparison here between the children of the world and the children of light. Okay? Now, the children of the world, those are the folks who uh, govern their lives according to worldly principles. Right? Uh, They govern their lives according to uh, worldly principles. They live their lives within this worldly system. They know how that system works, and they operate within that system. This would be the publicans who came to hear Jesus. And could it be that among the disciples of Jesus, there were former publicans? Well, yeah, because Matthew was a publican, wasn't he? Yeah, so there would be publicans in in among the groups that would be called uh, the disciples of Jesus. Uh, The very people that the Pharisees found fault with Jesus and associating with. All right? So these publicans are among these, these disciples of Jesus. And where these children of the world prove themselves wiser than the children of light, and again, the children of light's, are those who have the word of God to enlighten them, such as the Pharisees. Now that's a stretch when you think about that. These Pharisees have the word of God to enlighten them, the children of light, but are they taking advantage of that light? 
Are they taking advantage of that light? And he's saying that these children of the world are wiser than the children that have the word of God to enlighten them. And what he's saying is that these children of the world are wiser in the way they uh, operate among themselves to achieve their ends. Quite frankly, uh, those who are the children of light often behave themselves unwisely imprudently and undiplomatically toward others. I remember when I was a young believer in Christ, I was full of zeal, but uh, very little wisdom. Right? I was like a bull in a china shop type of mentality. I remember coming upon a friend of mine witnessing to one of our co-workers on the job site And instead of doing the wise thing and keeping my mouth shut, I barged right into the conversation. And long story short, I came across as a pulpit bully. Right? I was spouting off this and that and, you know, all this. Well, later, and rightly so, my friend uh, chastised me. And he said, you were absolutely wrong in your attitude and your approach and everything in that, in that situation. And he said, and because of, your, because of your demeanor, because of your brash behavior, um, you essentially set, shut down our co-worker's heart. And now they don't want anything to do with hearing about the gospel or religion or anything. I wasn't behaving very wisely, right? And so I learned a very important lesson that day. I learned a very important lesson that way. You know, the Pharisees who were overhearing what Jesus was teaching his disciples were just like that. Instead of attracting these publicans and sinners back into the lights... By their behavior, by their judgmental attitude, by their demeanor, they were driving them away. They, were dri- they weren't being very wise. They weren't being very prudent in their dealings with folks who needed to be exposed to the light. Sometimes Christians can come across with such a demeanor of self-righteous intolerance that even other believers don't want anything to do with them. That's not acting very wisely, prudently. He says here, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. You know, that, boy, that just kind of goes against the grain for some of us. Because some of God's people are such isolationists in their hearts that they don't want anything to do with the lost. They don't want anything to do with the lost. They don't want to make friends with the lost. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5.9, he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. You know, 
we're out there to make disciples, and if we don't go out where the people need to hear the, hear the gospel, we, if we don't go out where the people need to be exposed to the lights, we're failing in our stewardship. We're failing in our stewardship. You know, some people, they try to live their lives where they're totally isolated from the very people they need to reach. One of our supported missionaries approaches his field in making friends in order to win friends for Jesus. That's how he approaches his mission field. You know, it's okay to have friends with the lost. We should be making friends with the the lost. But make sure your friends don't influence you to become like the world. You're to influence them to be, uh, to come to Christ. But unfortunately, what happens with some Christians is they get so caught up in their worldly friends that they end up adopting the same, in, same kind of attitude that their worldly friends do. If that's what's going on, then you need to reevaluate your friendships. Also remember that Jesus is directing this instruction to his disciples. This would include the publicans that are in the group. Those men who were hired by Rome to collect taxes of their countrymen. Uh, These are the guys who uh, have a bad rep, right? Among the Pharisees. The instruction to these type would be that uh, worldly wealth should be used as shrewdly as this unjust steward. Not for selfish means like him, with the present in mind, but with the future in mind. Because that's what the unjust steward did. He set up for himself a better future the word fail as in that when ye fail that ye may that they may receive you into everlasting habitations is the word eclipo from which we get the word eclipse and we know what an eclipse is isn't it it's when the moon, it's when the moon comes in front of the sun and obscures the light of the sun or when the earth comes in between the sun and the moon and eclipses the light of the of the moon one of these days our light's going to go out one of these days our light on this earth is going to go out it's going to fail Jesus knew the, the power, the evil power that the love of money has on the heart of a man. And he also knew of the notorious reputation that his publican disciples had among the Jews. And what is exhorting these publican followers as well as his own disciples against this, this evil of love of money is he's teaching them a better use of this money in the helping of others and the promoting of the kingdom. That when death occurs, that when your light goes out and you're in the hereafter, right? 
that there will be those in heaven to welcome you, to receive you, that your wise stewardship has influenced them to come into the light as Christ is, where Christ is. You understand what I'm saying? There's an old uh, Jewish proverb that says, the rich help the poor in this world and the poor help the rich in the world to come. So as we, as we are wise stewards in this world, you know, influencing those for Christ, when we go up, when we finally, when our light goes out here and we are in heaven, I hope there's folks up there to welcome me because of something I've done or something I've said that has caused them to receive Christ as their Savior. That'd be awful to go up there and discover nobody there. An old-time preacher uh, taught, this was one of those old country folk preachers. I love hearing those guys preach. He was teaching about the foolish man who built the bigger barns. Remember him? This is what he said. He said, the hands of the poor, the houses of the widows, and the mouths of the fatherless are the barns that last forever. I thought that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Now, you can't buy your way into heaven. Okay, you can't, you can't buy your way into heaven. But the right use of what you have for the glory of God and for the gospel's sake... You definitely lay up treasures in heaven. Definitely lay up treasures in heaven. He goes on in Luke 16.10, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is just in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have been, not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either, he'll, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The principle is simple, but it's also profound. Our earthly wealth is given to us as a trust. Right? Uh, we're stewards of that which God has provided. King David had this right. Turn to First Chronicles chapter 29. King David had this right. Uh, the people were giving toward a building fund, if you will, for the temple. Because David desired to build a temple for the Lord. You know, a place to put the Ark of the Covenant in and everything. And so the people were giving gladly to this building project and so David seeing the generosity of the people broke out in, in, in praise and so we have his praise recorded for us here in First Chronicles chapter 29 and, and look at, starting here in verse 9 it says then the people rejoiced for that they offered willingly because with perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord 
And David the king also rejoiced with great joy. Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee." He understands where it all comes from. He understands that God is the source of everything that we have in this life. And so he willingly acknowledges that. He willingly acknowledges that. And we would do well to do the same thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.1, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be faithful. Are we faithful in that which God has provided us? That which has been entrusted to us. Are we faithful with that? You know... I believe we're allowed to possess it only as we use it prayerfully and properly in the service of God. God has given this to us for a reason. And it's for the propagation of the gospel and it's for the winning of the souls of men. Now, I'm not saying that we don't use the wealth, of course, to purchase a home and buy groceries and stuff but really what is the issue that we're talking about it's the issue of the heart isn't it it's the heart attitude that we're talking about as with the unjust steward if we're irresponsible with what God has entrusted to us it could be taken away from us it could be taken away from us And that's not only true of our wealth, but it's also true of other things. We're all gifted by God to serve the body. Are you using that gift as God intended? Or are you squandering it? Are you letting it it lie uh, static? Are you using that gift that God has given you to edify the body? Jesus' instruction to his public and disciples is simple. One can either be a slave to money, or one can be a servant of God, but you can't be both. That's the simple fact of the matter. You can't be both. So again, Jesus puts on the line for those who were following him as disciples, they had to make a choice. Is your pursuit in life going to be the pursuit of personal wealth? Is that going to be your whole motive in life? You know, um, we watch a program on television 
uh, I can't remember the name of the program, but it's a bunch of guys up in the Yukon uh, trying to dig gold out of the ground. And I mean, my goodness, they've got all of this equipment and they're ripping out the sides of mountains and they work for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours trying to sift this gold from this dirt. And at the end of this period of time, uh, they end up with a small handful of gold dust. And yeah, that small handful of gold dust may be worth $80,000, $100,000. But I'm, stu- and I'm sitting here and I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, all of that effort for a handful of stuff that they're going to spend up the next time one of those bulldozers break down. No. Be good stewards of God, right? Uh, Working toward the kingdom so that when your light goes out, (laughs) you're going to have treasure in heaven. That's the point. That's the point. Do I have time? I got 15, 20 minutes. So let's go on to the covetous Pharisees. Verse 14, And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things. And they derided him. I mean, that went against their grain. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. It's always a hard issue, isn't it? For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. So in the minds of the Pharisees, material wealth to them was proof of what? God's blessing, God's approval on their life. Right? Uh, These self-righteous men were convinced that they had God's approval because they had a little bit of coin in their pockets. They believed they were, they were righteous because, or they believed that, they, that God blessed them because they were righteous. You know, this is not any different than the message that the prosperity gospel preachers preach. Men like Kenneth Copeland and all these other guys, they, they preach the same message. They preach that God enriches the righteous and that poverty, if you're poor, that's a symptom that you're not righteous. Now, is that true? I know that's not true, because what does that say about the the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't even have a place to lay his own head down? Or what about the Apostle Paul? He was poor. Does that make him unrighteous? Paul said in Philippians 3, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Of course, if you're wealthy, that is no indication of God's approval on your life. You just might be very sharp with money. You just know how the system works. And that's a delusion for those who try to justify their covetousness. I saw Kenneth Copeland approached by a a reporter one time about him buying a brand new private jet. And he got angry with the person. How dare you question my purchasing a private jet? 
with my own money. <laughs> and the reporter says, that's not your money, that's the congregation's money. Well, he kind of sputtered around a little bit, got in his car and drove away. So wealth doesn't necessarily mean God's blessing on your life. Uh, the psalmist Asaph, he kind of wrestled with something. Turn to Psalm 73. The psalmist Asaph, he, 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 had, a, he had a bad moment in, in, in his uh, walk about this prosperity business. And so he uh, wrote a psalm about it in Psalm 73. In verse 3 he says, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasses them about as a chain, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes stand out with fatness, they have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. So what Asaph is seeing here, he's confused. He's saying, wait a minute, these wicked men are prospering. They're wealthy. He goes on in verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. So he's, he's, he's struggling with this. So after some time of prayer and reflection, he says here in verse 17, you know, he came to his right mind, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. He needed a shift in his perspective. He looked at it from the perspective of eternity. And he understands that real and lasting wealth resided with those who feared God. Verse 23 of Psalm 73. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holding me by, uh, by my right hand. Uh, thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Who am I, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I point this out because prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing on a person's life. We see right here that the wicked even prosper. This is the mistake that the Pharisees have made. This is the mistake that a lot of people make. They think that God blesses them because... God approves of their life. And so Jesus exposes these men's hearts. And though they may believe that they were just in the eyes of God, he was saying, no, that is not true. That is not true. You're only just in the eyes of other men who believe exactly like you do. That's a watch out, guys. It's easy to think you're something when you hang around with people who also think you're something. All right? What these men valued, God despised, and transversely, what God valued, these men despised. In verse 16, he says, The law and the prophets were until John, since that time, 
The kingdom of God is preached and every man presses into it. From Moses to John the Baptist, the promise of the Messiah has been preached by these, by the prophets. It has resonated, it resonates throughout all the Old Testament that the Messiah would come and establish the kingdom of righteousness sitting upon the throne of David. And yet the Messiah Messiah had arrived, the Messiah was right there with them. And yet these envious, covetous men, did they receive him? No, they opposed him. They hated him. In fact, they sought after his death. So God, who honors the Son, these Pharisees derided him. Luke sixteen seventeen, he says, And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. In this verse, Jesus is pointing out another matter with these Pharisees. Is that they hold no value to God's word. Instead of coveting the truth, They covet a lie. They covet their own truth. Does God esteem his word? You know he does. Psalms 138.2 says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. You know that God esteems his word. You know God esteems his word. But yet these covetous men, they did not esteem God's word. And by their covetousness, they violated God's word. Now, how did they violate God's word? In this matter of committing adultery. If 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 a man coveted another man's wife or another woman, what they did was, is they took God's clear commandments and they manipulated it and they fixed it to where they could write a bill of divorcement so they could divorce their wife Deuteronomy 24 1 says when a man had taken a wife and married her and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it into her hand and send her out of the house. Now that uncleanness has nothing to do with what these guys apply to it. In their bylaws, a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner. If she spoiled his dinner, then that would have been grounds for divorce, according to their bylaws. According to their bylaws. They were covetous. They were covetous. So they fixed it where they could use God's word to fulfill their own covetousness. This attitude is no different than today as far as marriage is concerned. What is it, the term irreconcilable differences? You know, we've grown apart. I, I, I need time to discover who I am. 
Um, I'm tired of being married, so let's get a divorce. These men who claimed to be righteous and pointed to their wealth as proof of God's approval were nothing less than covetous breakers of God's law, God's word. These men trusted in their own righteousness. They were self-deceived by their own covetousness. And Christ pointed it out to them. Christ's words to these men was that those who catered to a covetous heart and flouted God's word to fulfill that desire of the covetous heart had no part in the kingdom. And that sets up the next story of the rich man and Lazarus. So you can see how all of this fits together as a unit. And we'll cover that rich man and Lazarus next Sunday. Holy Father in heaven, um, you know, some of the things that we read in your word are very hard and challenging. Uh, but Father, the, it's still truth. So, Father, as we reflect on these things, help us, Lord God, to apply them to our own lives. And we don't want to be hypocrites with the truth. We want to value your word. Uh, We want to aspire to align ourselves to its blessed teaching. So please, I pray in the power of your spirit, uh, help us to do so. Also help us, Father, to be good stewards with the gospel. I know there are folks in this class that uh, go to the prisoners and the prisons uh, that reach out to their neighbors in the neighborhood, uh, that speak to their co-workers at, on their job sites. And I pray, Father, that you would bless uh, the efforts of those who are uh, wanting to be good stewards uh, with the good news of Jesus Christ as they share that good news with others. I pray, Lord, you would bless their efforts and that, Father, that uh, they would see uh, a good return on their investment. And I I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ray, how are you? Uh, Oh, pretty good.